You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here with us. So let me tell you something. Uh, I used to be in a band about a million years ago, and we had signed a two-album record deal. And then uh, the summer after our first album came out, we went out and did this summer tour over most of America, which took pretty much the entire summer. And space was limited. We had this conversion van that we were going to be basically living out of, and then we had a trailer which had you know, guitars, drums, amps, you know, merch, that like t-shirts and hoodies that we sold. Uh, so everyone was allowed one duffel bag for the whole summer. So I get my clothes together, I throw them in this duffel bag, and then I, I get my bottle of cologne and I throw it in the bag as well. Because even if you're, you're going to live out of a van, essentially for the next three months, you don't have to smell like an animal. So now you got to understand this is the summer of 1995. So I know for some of you, I may, I may be saying like, it was, you know, back at the turn of the century, you know. But summer of 1995, just to give you an idea of what was happening. Uh, this, is, this movie came out, uh, Batman Forever. This is the one starring Val Kilmer. This is a terrible movie. <laughs> like, you want to skip this one, all right? Uh, this is not the Michael Keaton Batman. This is something else. Um, but it also this movie came out that same summer, uh, which is probably one of the 20 best movies of all time. Those of you that aren't clapping probably haven't seen it, so you have homework to do. Now, uh, the, so once again, just to kind of give you a feel for what was it like, you know, so the top songs, the top three songs on Billboard that summer uh, were, so here's, here's one song that was a number one hit. That summer was Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio. <laughs> Been living most of our lives. You know, by the way, that was super accurate, what I just did. Super accurate. Listen to it later. It's super accurate. And then uh, the other song was uh, Kiss from a Rose by Seal. Baby! So that, uh, and then the third was Waterfall by TLC. Don't even think about chasing them. You stick to the rivers and lakes you're used to. All right? So anyway... So this is kind of give you an idea of what's happening in the world at that time. So I'm getting my stuff together. I threw my Janko jeans, if anybody remembers Janko jeans, uh, in my bag along with my cologne. Let me give you a picture of my cologne. Uh, yeah. Now, this is a safe place. We've known each other for three and a half minutes. Um, anybody wear Dracar at some point in time? Oh, yeah. A lot more people. A whole bunch of liars in the first service. I knew those people have issues. Uh, but I'll tell you what happened in the first service is that like, there was like three guys over here in the first service like, yeah, yeah. And then after they raised their hand, a whole bunch of people on this side, it was like, like, oh, it really is a safe place. Okay. Yeah, I did. Anyway, it was so, so weird. But anyway, now 1995 was Drakkar's prime. And so I was ready to brighten every room I walked into with my Drakkar. The problem is, is that if you look at the Drakkar bottle, if you remember the Drakkar bottle, when you take that little cap off, it comes up. The, the top comes up, and then the, the cap has like a little plug that plugs the, the opening for the Drakkar. The problem is that I had dropped the cap, and so the cap was cracked. And so, but no worries, I took a little piece of tape that was about the size of a postage stamp and put it on there. So I toss it in my bag, 
and I leave for the next three months on tour. And now the thing is, is that these guys were not handling my luggage nicely. They just threw all my stuff in the back of the van and the piece of tape came undone. The Drakkar starts leaking and it bleeds through my bag, through my clothes, through my bag and into everyone else's bag and clothes. And so now, mind you, we leave out of we're kind of North Broward is where we were. We had all of our stuff. And so we leave on tour. We hadn't even left Palm Beach County yet. And the guys are like, what stinks in this van? Now, here's the thing you got to understand about me. I can't smell anything. My nose exists for one purpose, and that is to hold up my glasses. That's it. All right? So anyway, so people say that smells great. I can't smell it. People say something smells bad. Can't smell that either. So we pull over because they can't deal with the smell. And they find out the problem, what happened with my Dracar bottle. And now everybody's mad at me. And I'm like, I don't know why you guys are upset. You all smell like a very potent version of me. And uh, which wasn't exciting for them. And by the way, the way our tour started, uh, we actually had to drive all the way to Virginia because our first show is in Virginia Beach. And then it was Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Atlanta, and then so on throughout America. Now, why do I tell you this? Because conflict stinks, right? It's just, that's the reality of it. Really, I thought that was going to get a little something. Okay, nothing. Uh, too late. Uh, but, but here's the problem. Like, this is the problem that happens with conflict is it kind of seeps into our lives, spices everything up in a negative way. And I, and I bring this whole idea up because of what we're going to be talking about in our message today, because we started a series a couple of weeks ago. The book is called 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians living in a, in a city called Corinth, which was in southern Greece. There's a woman by the name of Chloe. Chloe and her family attend the church at Corinth. She's friends with the Apostle Paul. She sends the Apostle Paul a letter and says, Paul, the church that you started and spent two and a half years working on, building up, that church is totally out of control. And listen, she was not overstating the matter. Uh, the church at Corinth was, had all kinds of problems. They had division, infighting. There were, to the point where people, this is how messed up this church was, people were getting drunk while they were taking communion. File that under, not cool. And uh, they were suing each other. It was a total mess. So Paul writes them this letter and tells them that a divided world needs a united church. And the way, the key to being a united church is to have the mind of Christ. Now, what is the mind of Christ? If you were here with us last time, we actually defined what that was, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version now. The mind of Christ is thinking about things the way Jesus thinks about things. It's knowing what God wants us to do and speaking and acting and living in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. And that means that we need to deal with conflict in a way that's different than the way that our culture deals with conflict, because our culture is out there trying to win an argument. But see, wise people who follow Jesus, here's what they know. The goal is not winning the argument. The goal is winning the relationship. And this is the, the challenge that we have is that conflict is very kind of Drakkar-like in its approach. And that is it, it doesn't pour out all at once. It's not you just deal with the one issue and then move on. No, no, no. Instead, it just kind of begins to seep into everything, right? It's never one thing. It's always a million little things that kill relationships. When marriages end, they cite something called irreconcilable differences. There's really no definition for that, 
that, that, but what it is, it's just code for, it's not just one thing as to why we're splitting, it's a million little things as to why. When a friendship has a falling out, they'll say, well, you know, that person just changed. What does that mean? That's code for a million little things seeped into every part of life. And so what Paul is going to do is that he's going to address the Corinthians and the division that they've experienced and really pinpoint the cause because the cause, right? That's the Dracar bottle. The cause is the thing that's causing the seep into everything. And this is what's causing every disagreement, every argument, every conflict. And most of it we think is external, but it's usually internal. There's something internal that's happening that's causing the problems. And listen, um, this is going to apply to us so deeply. This is one of the reasons why uh, I felt like 1 Corinthians was the next book for us as a church because we all experience conflict. And listen, living at the time in which we're living, there has never been more conflict than there is now because people are angry. Have you noticed that? People are angry because they've had a year of their lives taken away from them. I don't know if you know this, but to, uh, this is the one year anniversary of the last normal service we had at Calvary, like before masks and distancing and all those terms came into our lives. Uh, One year ago, we had our last services uh, before lockdowns and masks and all that kind of stuff and things getting shut down. And listen, some people have handled it better than others. And the reality is, is that we've had a year of our lives taken away from us. And some people, many people are just angry. They're frustrated but they don't really know who to blame. So you know what happens when you're angry or frustrated and you don't know who to take it out on? You end up taking it out on whoever's close by. And however you think that that's that's good. So listen, um, conflict is at an all-time high. And that's why we need to learn how to identify the root of it and we need to learn how to diffuse it. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in verse 1. And here's what we read. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with spiritual food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? If you pause there and give me your attention. Three things that I want to tell you about conflict in our time together. But the first is this, is that conflict comes from fleshly desires. Now, Paul is going to divide the crowd by saying that there's two different types of people, that there are spiritual people and carnal people. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a spiritual person or a spirit-led person or a carnal person? That is a person that's led by their flesh. At its core, it's all about appetite. And that is, what are you hungry for? If you're hungry for the things of God, it is a good indicator that you're a spiritual person, you're a spirit-led person. If you have no appetite for the things of God, and it's really only carnal, earthly, fleshly things that you're interested, that is speaking to us as well. And by the way, we can all put on a show and try to turn it on and appear to be more spiritual than we actually are when necessary, but our appetites will ultimately determine the things that we value the most. I have a friend who, a few years ago, his wife made, woke up one morning and decided to put him on a diet. You can imagine how well that went over. But he resented the fact that his wife had just said, hey, you're going on a diet starting today. And so she would pack him these healthy 
lunches, I guess you could be called lunch. And, uh, and so, and he would just throw it out and eat whatever he wanted. And then on the way home from the office, he would stop at McDonald's and eat a Big Mac, fries, and a Coke before going home. So then, this is like two weeks later, I see his wife and, and she says, Bob, I, I don't understand. I, I don't, he's eating everything I tell him to eat. And, but he's still gaining weight. I mean, he comes home, he doesn't even finish his dinner because he says he's full, but he's gained five pounds in the last week. And I don't know what to do. Now, I hate being put in these weird kind of situations because I never know what to say. And I don't want to lie. And so, and, and I certainly don't want to tell the truth. Uh, and, and, like, and so, sorry, but I don't. Uh, because like, what, you know, I, there's, there's, a, there's a friendship code. Uh, and so I, I don't want to lie. I don't want to tell the truth. So there's like these kind of intermediate sayings that you can say. And so what I said was, I said, wow, that's weird. I don't know what to tell you. And, uh, and she was like, yeah, it's so weird, right? I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Hey, I got to go. And I just left and uh, never saw them again. And <laughs> but here's the thing, right? And, and the point is this, what she made, it didn't matter what she made. He didn't have an appetite for it because he was already full from something else. The exact same thing is true for us spiritually. And Paul is going to clarify this further, that he says, here's the thing that carnal people, fleshly people, people not led by the Spirit, here's the thing that they crave. He says it in verse 3, they crave envy, they crave strife, and they crave divisions. Now, what does that mean? Now, envy is simply more people like, and people are envious. Well, that just means that they're jealous. It's a little bit more than that. It is that, but it's even a little bit deeper than that because the Greek word there is the Greek word zelos, uh, Z-E-L-O-S. And at other times, the New Testament uses that word and it's translated as zeal or zealous. And so now that makes sense because if you're a parent, you are zealous for your kids. That is, you want the best for them. You're looking out for their best interests. You want them to have maybe opportunities that you didn't have. But what happens when you have that kind of zeal only for yourself? You only want the best for you. You don't care what happens to anybody else. No, no, no. It's really about me. It's about my desires, and I'll stop at nothing to get what I want. That's when the zealous now becomes envious, and what, if someone else has something it's because I don't have it. And so now I've got, they've got to lose something so that I can gain something. It's an absolutely terrible way to live. Strife, he says it's envy, there's strife. This is the person who loves to argue. We all know people like that. It's very easy to spot people like that because they have no friends. Because no one wants to be friends with someone who loves arguing. You know why? Because those people are completely exhausting. And then he says that the last one is, it's not just envy, it's not just strife, but it's division, it's dissension, it's disunity, it's anything that separates people who should otherwise be united. By the way, when you ever wonder what God hates, like I know that we have a list kind of in our minds, like, oh, here's some things that God probably hates. There actually is a list, if you're not aware. In Proverbs chapter six, there's a list of the things that God actually hates. Here's what it says. It says, there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that, sw- that are swift to running to evil, a false witness, 
one who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You see, you and I will not experience peace from conflict if our goal is to always win the argument and see the other person as the enemy. Spiritual people, here's what they do. Spirit-led people find common ground and diffuse conflict by focusing on what matters most. Now, are there times that you have to divide? Are there times that it's like, hey, that's just a bridge too far? Hey, you know, we disagree about this. Yeah, there are moments, but let's be honest, that should be more the exception than the rule. And and there are moments that I'll be talking to someone and maybe they'll bring something up and I'll just say to them, and I say this to myself quite often, but I'll say to them like, is this the hill you want to die on? Like, this is the thing that I'm going to sacrifice everything over. And they're like, no, no, no. I'm just, but, but see, you're, you're acting like it's a life or death thing. My friends, let me tell you something. If you want to be happier, you got to learn to let go of things that don't really matter. There's things that it's like, hey, in the whole scheme of life, in my entire life, like that one thing, that one moment, that one sentence, it really doesn't matter all that much. You're going to be a lot happier if you learn to let things go. But the point that Paul is making is, is that if you want to diffuse conflict, the first thing you've got to do, the first thing we've got to do is check our motives for carnal appetites. And if we have the right heart, we can get to the meat of dealing with disagreements, which is uh, what he's going to bring up next in verse 5. He says, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything or he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and waters are one. And each will receive his own reward according to his labor. For you, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And now he's going to describe the way that we, the, the, the work that we do, why it matters and why the motive behind it matters. He says this in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed to how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. If you pause there and give me your attention, it's kind of a long stretch of passage, but really making one central point. And that is, here's the second point in your outline, that conflict comes from short-sighted vision. Now, here's what happens when a, spiritually, a person is spiritually immature and carnal, they start to believe that being picky in your spiritual food is actually maturity. They were like, well, I prefer Paul's teaching. Well, you know, Apollos is the real deep guy around here. And, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with having a favorite teacher, nothing wrong with liking a particular teaching style. Here's the problem. This church was so out of control and they were picking all of their favorite teachers, but they weren't doing anything that any of these teachers were telling them to do. And this is what happens when people think that being critical somehow makes them mature. Being critical doesn't make you mature. Being critical makes you a jerk. And that is a totally different thing. Now, when I started playing guitar, I was 13. I was living in Boston at the time. And uh, my mom took me to the local music store at the time. I don't know if they do this anymore, but you could go to a music store and you could rent 
a guitar or bass or drums for a month uh, to see if it's kind of for you. And so one, we couldn't afford to buy a guitar. And two, my mom wanted to see if I'd stick with it. So I think it was like 25 bucks to rent a guitar for a month. And so this is, wow, like that's a long time. Yeah, it was right around the time electricity was becoming a thing. And so, so the guy at the music store shows me the three options. These are the three guitars that we, uh, that we rent. And so I had to pick one. So I started asking a few questions about each one. Now, I had no idea what the differences were. Now, I've been playing guitar now for more than 30 years. I can play three chords and tell you a lot about a guitar. But the guy was getting frustrated with me, uh, and, and so he says this to me. Now, um, he's like, look, man, this and that, you just pick one. And, and then I said, hey, by the way, I'm left-handed. Do you have a left-handed guitar? Now, this is exactly what he said to me. I, do, if, I hope this doesn't offend your sensibilities, but I'll just tell you exactly how he said this to me. He said, listen, kid, you suck whether it's left-handed or right-handed. And uh, so why don't you just play the right way? Here's a right-handed guitar. And, uh, and so, and then he said, this is the guitar you're getting. And I just said, okay. It's like the best advice anyone's ever given me, right? I'd be playing like a madman like this or like Jimi Hendrix, I guess. And so now here's the thing is that, and this, now mind you, the guy just wanted me out of the store, but this is the point is that I'm like trying to be some kind of connoisseur, but I don't know anything about anything. And so, because here's the reality, the best guitar is the one you'll actually play. When people want to argue with me about Bible translations, I'll usually tell them, hey, this is what I read from, which by the way is called the New King James. Um, And I I have some reasons. If you read my book, Begin, I have a whole section in there as to why, uh, how to choose a Bible translation. But at the end of the day, you know what the best Bible translation is? the one that you're actually going to read. And one of the challenges that we have in our country in particular is that we are educated way beyond our level of obedience. And so what we do is we become like these spiritual connoisseurs to distract us from the fact that we aren't doing the thing that we're hearing. And that's the thing that Paul is saying. He's like, you're saying I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. You're not doing anything that any of us are teaching you or the, the, the church wouldn't be as divided as it is. Jesus' younger brother, James, he said it this way. He said, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You see, He's saying this, instead of dividing over who you like better, why don't you actually start doing what these teachers are saying to do, and you're going to find that there's a whole lot more unity in that. Now, he says that, and then he changes gears, talking about the work that each of these preachers were doing. One was laying the foundation, the other was building on it, that all of us serve building on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, and Then, and this is the real important thing for us, is that we can start outwardly doing all these things that look good, but then the test comes to see if it's for real. And you'll notice that he says there, starting in verse 12 through uh, 15, he says, if anyone builds on gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear and that it's revealed by fire. Now, fire throughout the New Testament 
is used to talk about challenges, difficulties that come into our lives. You, you know, you, we use that in our culture, right? I'm going through the fire. Man, I went from the frying pan into the fire. We talk about that. And that that's something that's used for difficulties, challenges, trials. And, but what happens is, is that when a precious stone goes into the fire, it's refined. When wood, hay, or stubble go into the fire, it's consumed. And that's why fire has the ability to purify what's valuable and make it even more valuable through the purifying process. When a smelter gets something like silver and puts it into a fire, you know what happens? All of the impurities in that silver begin to bubble up. And then with an instrument, they wipe away everything that's impure. And he keeps working that silver until all the impurities are gone. And by the way, here's how he knows if the silver is ready and all the impurities have been taken out of it. It's when the smelter can look at the silver and see his own reflection. This is the work that God is doing in you and me and us through our service and our sacrifices. He's purifying us, refining us, and transforming us. That's why First Peter would say it this way. He says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of, our, uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, you see, there's something powerful that happens when we come into this house and we say, I want God to transform me when, when, when I'm here is that now the focus doesn't become on all these like silly things. Well, I wish they'd do that, and I wish they'd do that. No, no, no. Now the focus is on, I need to change, I need to worship God, I need to hear the word, and I need to apply it. And by the way, you know what changes your perspective about church more than just about any other thing? Bringing a friend with you who's never been here before. And I'm telling you, if you haven't done it in a while, do it. And you're going to notice that you start experiencing Calvary in a whole new way through their eyes. And it changes how everything happens here. And, uh, and now you're like, oh, there's, okay. oh, there's somebody out there to go. Okay, they're going to tell me where to park. Oh, that's nice. Oh, look, that person's smiling. That, oh, they have all their teeth. Great. And uh, that's awesome. And so, and you start. And by the way, I know, and, and you guys do this, and you're very kind um, but you're speaking to me in a code. Whenever someone introduces me to their friend before the service, here's what they'll say. They'll say, hey, Pastor Bob, this is my friend. And uh, they're here at Calvary for the very first time. Like, hey, it's nice to meet you. And, and, and then now, and some of you, um, you're so kind because this, that's what you say, but let me, ex- let me interpret what that means. Um, what that means is, Pastor Bob, Bob, I've been praying for my friend to come to church for a while. Do not screw this up. <laughs> and by the way, I'm telling you before the service so that you don't talk about anything weird. So, like, do not talk about, like, circumcision or speaking in tongues. And by the way, tithing, that's totally off the table. I'm telling you beforehand, so make whatever modifications you need to. And so that, that's all being said in, hey, Pastor Bob, this is my friend. He's here for the first time. Wink, wink, it's a message received. And so now, and the, the point is this, is that whenever, and by the way, that just, I'm telling you, it changes you. You do this. 
Invite somebody to come to, to church with you on Easter and you will experience this church in a totally different way. And the point that Paul is making is, is that when it stops being about my preference, um, then all of these, these things, that the service that I do, the sacrifices that I make, it becomes gold, silver, and precious stones that even in a season of difficulty, it gets refined. And by the way, now that you realize what the motives are behind the conflict, now we can actually deal with what the problem is. And that is what he says in verse 16. And he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, if that sounds familiar, that end part, it's because that, he says almost the identical thing at the end of Romans chapter 8. Now, last thing I want to tell you about conflict, and that is that conflict comes from internal deception. What do I mean by that? There's a couple of things that are important here to understand in what's being said. The first thing that he says is that we are God's temple. Now, this is a little bit of an Easter egg because he's planting this here, but he's really going to expound on this when we get to chapter 6. But he's starting to establish this idea that we are the temple. And this is not just personally. He's going to talk about that in chapter 6. What he's talking about here is that we are God's temple collectively because the word that he uses is not the Greek word that would be used for the entire temple complex in Jerusalem. Instead, it's this Greek word, naos, N-A-O-S, that refers specifically to the holy of holies in the temple. That is the place where the glory of God dwelt. Now, here's what you have to understand. This church was very divided. And Paul is saying, if you start dividing God's church, you are making yourself an enemy of God. Now, the one of the things that People say sometimes about the Bibles, you know, it's impossible to know what the Bible means. Now, if anyone defiles or divides the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, I don't know if that's like needs to be more clear. Like if you, because you know why? The Bible, uh, when it talks about the church, God's people, one of the metaphors that it uses is the bride of Christ. That's the metaphor that's being used. And I don't know if you know about this, but most guys can deal with anything that you say about them, but you start messing with a guy's wife, and that's when the gloves come off. And, like, people, you know, say whatever they want about me, and they do. Don't get me wrong. Um, by the way, one good thing, never Google yourself. That is not a good thing. I haven't done that in years. And uh, one of my kids was asking, do you ever Google yourself? Like, I do not recommend that. Because people say all kinds of crazy things. Because it's, it's very possible to have an internet connection and be a lunatic. So, I, um, but here's the thing. is that You can say whatever you want about me. Um, but the moment that somebody says something about my wife, the rules of the game change. And like we are no longer friends. And now, in the same way, the church is the bride of Christ. And whoever would seek to divide or bring harm to the church is going to find themselves in direct conflict with God. And by the way, you being on one side and God being on the other is not the way you want to play this game. 
right? You, whatever side God's on, that's the side you want to be on. And that's why he says in verse 18, don't deceive yourself. He's saying to them, do not get this twisted. If you think you're smart according to cultural standards, you're actually a fool. And that word, uh, he says this in verse 18 and 19, that he says, let him become a fool, and then for the wisdom of God is foolishness. It's the same word in Greek. It's the Greek word moros, M-O-R-O-S. It's where we get the English word moron. And he's saying the wisdom of this world is moronic compared to God's wisdom. And this is where the conflict comes in, is whenever we seek to, by worldly standards, try to present ourselves as more than we are and not use a biblical standard by which we live our lives. And if we think that we're smarter than everybody else or we're going to be wise by, according to cultural standards, uh, conflict is bound to happen. Now, let me explain what I mean. And so this is true in God's house, and it's also true in your house and my house. And that is, so in your marriage, in your family, um, one person, I mean, both people can have this, but what can happen is, is that someone in your marriage, one of you, has expectations of what they believe that should happen. Now, they've never verbalized these expectations, but when these expectations aren't met, they get very frustrated and upset because the thing that they have never verbalized hasn't happened. Now, I'm telling you this is one of the reasons why couples struggle is because they never actually say what they want. And so, now, and yet they think the other person should simply know. And I'm not going to actually say what I want because I want to appear to be like some kind of tough guy. Now, listen. That is the wisdom of our culture, and it doesn't work. you got to talk it out. you got to get it out on the table because it's the only way that you're going to get on the same page. And what happens sometimes is that what we want to do is, well, I have this expectation, but what we're really doing is I'm trying to leverage my marriage. I'm trying to leverage my spouse for my benefit. That's what the culture teaches, right? If you're not happy, if you're not you know, being fulfilled or whatever, that's not the, what Jesus modeled. The Jesus model is this. He did not leverage someone else for his benefit. He leveraged himself and who he was for the benefit of others. And that is the only way that marriage works. That is the wisdom of God. Have you ever watched a movie and like 20 minutes into the movie, you'd say, you know, if that guy and that guy would just have a conversation, this movie would be over. You ever have that? And like that, these two, they have this misunderstanding and it's just this unspoken thing. And then now like things are blowing up and wars are being started. And it's like, if they would just talk, uh, then this would, all, this would all be handled. That's what happens. We don't communicate and then things get worse. And why is that? The Apostle Paul would talk about it this way in Philippians chapter two. You'll see it up on the screen. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. That conflict melts when humility is introduced. It melts when humility is introduced. The fear that we have in humility is that we don't want to appear weak. We always want to appear strong. We always want to appear like we have it all together. And listen, that is what wisdom in our culture is teaching us. That is not what God is teaching us, certainly not in his house. Because listen, this is pride at its core. Pride wants to make everything in our lives about us. And you know what the reality is? Because sometimes we're like, yeah, but I'm gonna do it. What are people gonna think? So I wanna appear like I have it all together. You know what people are thinking about you? Not much. 
I'm sorry to tell you. When you're like, oh man, just, what are people, you know, people aren't thinking about you that much. People aren't thinking about me that much, much to my dismay. Um, and I, ha- I see it happen even here, and every once in a while, I-, I feel like God does these things to kind of remind me, where someone will be like, Pastor, I really enjoyed that message. We really love coming to Calvary. I'm like, thanks so much. And they'll say, and what was your name again? Is it Bob, right? And, uh, and I'm like, yes, it's Bob. And they're like, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and then, but whenever people, that's only if they like it. If they don't like it, I just give them another name. Uh, you know, that, my, name, my name's Alex. You see me around. So everybody loves Alex, so it's okay to give him a little, give him a little grief, and he can, he can take it. Um, but this is the thing, but th- that's just the reality, right? Now, when I was in college, I, had, uh, I went to school during the day. I worked at night. I was a delivery guy, and uh, there was this kid that worked there that was amazed by my sense of direction. I've always had a pretty good sense of direction, but he wanted to be a delivery guy too, so he's like, you know, Bob, could you teach me? And this kid could get lost in his living room. And so uh, he asked me for some help. And so uh, the first thing I did was I'm like, look, you got to understand where you are in the world. So I just grabbed him by the shoulders and I turned him and I said, okay, this is north. And he's like, oh, I get it. So everywhere that I look is north. And I'm like, no, because you're not the center of the universe. And this is what, but you know, this is exactly what pride does. Pride causes us to think that we are the center of the universe, that everything revolves around us, and that everybody is thinking about us all the time. None of those things are true. The reality is, and you know what the sad part is, is that pride is different than most sins because you can detect that you're doing most sins, right? No one is surprised to find out that they're committing adultery, right? Nobody's like, whoa, you're not my wife. I had no idea, right? Nobody's shocked. Nobody's shocked. Nobody find, nobody's surprised to find out they've stolen money. Like, dude, I don't know. It must have fallen out of your bank account and fallen into mine. Like, how do things, how do things even happen? You know, pride is different. Pride is impossible to detect without God's help. Now, everyone around you can detect it. But the problem is, is that pride makes us fools because the pride person can never learn from mistakes because they can never admit that they made a mistake. And if they do admit they made a mistake, you made me make the mistake, so it's really not my fault, it's yours. And that's why proud people always make poor choices. They have to justify their decisions and double down rather than admit they're wrong and learn so they don't repeat the same mistakes again. And this is why there's conflict because there isn't enough humility to admit that we're wrong. And you know what is so, what's such good news is that God loves us too much to keep us there. This is why he invites us to follow him. That even the, the um, invitation to follow Jesus is an act of humility. That we learn from, that we follow him and we take the position of the learner. Not the one who knows everything, we're the learners. And when we take that position of humility, that I'm following you, you're in charge, you're leading. I'm following, I'm learning. Now change, any kind of change, is possible. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 10 that he came to give us life. And that life is abundant, overflowing with joy. It's not a perfect life or a problem-free life, but it's one that's characterized by joy even in the midst of challenges. And here's the thing that I just, is just so wonderful, is that the conflict that we're experiencing, wherever it is, it can't stand. 
It can't stay. It won't sit. It will, it be, it like, I'm telling you, like ice in the midday sun, it starts to melt when people invite humility into their lives. Then we find common ground. We find peace. Why? Because there's, there's a group of people, two people that decided to be led by the spirit instead of led by something, uh, these ugly motives that were something internal. They decided to humble themselves. And listen, I believe for us, in the midst of conflicts that we might be experiencing, I believe that's God, God's word for us today. That there is something wonderful that happens when we humble ourselves and we start to experience everything that God can do. Because here's what the Bible says, when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that very promise the good work that you want to do in us. And so we invite you to do it. We don't want to be a divided people. We don't want to be a people who have mixed motives. Instead, we want to be a people who are humble, ready for you to do your work in us. God, we don't want to be right. We want to be better. And so help us in that, that you might transform our relationships, transform our community, transform this world that so desperately needs you. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.